Hi, Tomatics. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have an amazing guest. We have David Bianchi. He's an actor, writer, director, producer with over 100 professional credits in studio films and major network TV shows. David is known for his work in Queen of the South, and currently David is in on the show Resident Alien on Peacock. Let's welcome David to the show. Hi, David. Hey, 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 how are you? <laughs> oh, wow, you do have done so many different studio films and TV shows, over a hundred. How do you have time to do all that? Well, I mean, you know the old fable. I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, I got my Screen Actors Guild card in 2004, so I've been at this for a while. <laughs> and um, can you let everyone know, because we have um, listeners all around the world, where are am I recording with you today from? Where are you in the world? Los Angeles, California, the one and only. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I had asked you earlier, so that Bianca, the last name, there's Italian in there somewhere. Yes, there is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Italian. I'm Italian and Afro-Brazilian. Um, so half my family lives in Brazil. Um, and then my father is from, uh, you know, he's from Western, well, Eastern Pennsylvania, um, a small sort of Italian town in Pennsylvania. So he's first generation. So I still carry the last name Bianchi. I love that. Yes. As everyone knows by now, my mom lives half in Italy and she's Italian and she loves action films, David. So she's going to be watching your shows just to let you know she's going to get the Italians behind her shows. <laughs> 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 so, uh, David, so I'm um, growing up. It sounds like where did you grow up? You said, um, was it Philadelphia that you grew up? No. So I, I grew up in upstate New York. I grew up in Rochester, speaking of film, the home of Eastman Kodak. And, um, you know, the, the, the short version is, I remember as early as second grade, you know, we would um, act out TV commercials with the kids in the neighborhood on the swing sets. And, uh, you know, so I was doing improvisation before I knew what improv was um, and sort of being in front of an audience and performing. You know, I, in third grade, I moved to Mexico City. Uh, with my father was transferred on business and so that was when I really really sort of like got my feet into theater and I was the first I did was Nutcracker and then the first leading role I had uh, playing Peter Pan or playing Captain Hook and Peter Pan and uh, you know I had the painted mustache on my face and you know the little you know the metal hook and everything and and uh, that was my first time being you know in a leading role in front of a room of you know over at the time, probably about a hundred people. It was a it was a fairly decent sized school. So at that point, you know, I kind of got the bug, right? Um, flash forward to my teens, moved back to upstate New York, and and all the way through high school, I was always involved in in uh, in some sort of high school theater. Um, I uh, I moved around a lot. I was uh, I, I had a chip on my shoulder. I got a <laughs> a lot of people don't really, well. I guess it's out, it's out there. I was expelled from six high schools. Uh, I never graduated. <laughs> I, uh, I I ended up ended up getting my GED at the local small. It's funny. Uh, drove my parents crazy. I love them with all my heart. God bless their souls. But, but I, I bring that up because even though I was like literally expelled, like you, if you come back to this campus, you will be arrested for trespassing. Type what? of expel. Like this. <laughs> so the, 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 we will. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll bore you. I won't. I won't. I won't bury the details. All, all kinds of stories around that. But I say because every single one of those schools, probably five out of the six. I ended up pulling off a theater production before I ended up 
in, in enough insubordination that I got expelled. So I was always fascinated by um, by performance. Um, I went on to then sort theater in my uh, in my late teens, and I became a rave promoter. So I was throwing like outlaw underground raves, and. Um, you know, I remember when I went to my first rave in Toronto, and I'm going to bring this full full circle so you understand why I'm telling you all this. Oh, sure. When I went to my first when I went to my first rave in Toronto, I was blown away. I was deep into the hip hop scene, and we were fighting and this and that. And then the hip hop scene, if someone steps on your shoe, it's like you you put your knuckles up, right? <laughs> and I remember I went I went I went to my first rave in Toronto. I remember I, I was blatant, I was tripping on, on excessive amounts of acid, and I and I bumped into this dude really really hardcore. It's my fault. And he was this big like muscular Asian guy, and he and I was like I put my hands up. I was like, yeah, he's gonna whip my ass. And uh, and he looked, he put his hands on my shoulders, and he looked at me, and he smiled. He said, bro it's okay. And I just lit up. I mean, I just lit up. I danced literally. I felt like I conquered Toronto with my boy Danny at the time. But I say this because I also, the other thing I noticed about the race, not only did it become my home for the next probably eight, nine, 10 years of my life is I noticed that they had turned a gritty, disgusting warehouse into a massive one-off nightclub. And I saw Argon lasers. I saw sound. I saw DJs. I saw beautiful people. I felt energized production value so i ended up going straight back to rochester new york and within like a month i convinced all my friends to like clear away an acre and a half of like tree-filled brushland and i ended up throwing my first rave and we booked a, a school bus and had a map point and we got kids on a school bus and drove them out to the middle of the field and we had this big rave and we were you know we were <laughs> i think we rolled up like half a pound of weed and we were selling blunts you know and and i, I say all that because unbeknownst to me all these lessons were actually preparing me to become an actor and a filmmaker. So shit hit the fan um, in the in the electronic dance scene. And in about 2001, I went to Arizona State University. And I trained under a guy named Marshall Mason, who is widely known as one of the most legendary living uh, Broadway directors, has four Tony Awards for his work on Broadway. And I, I get to Arizona State, and for a guy that never graduated from high school, I went to a local community college. I had to I had to pass three classes with like a, a 4.0 to enter ASU on academic discipline, on academic discipline. Right. Um, I got in and I ended up performing on the main stage at Arizona state, um, three times, uh, started the only film program that was there and graduated Maggie top of my class. Um, while I was there, I was producing spoken word events and I directed my first short film in 2003 while I was there also, you know, really sharpening my knives and learning the mechanics of performance and how to to control your body, how to use your physical form, voice and diction, the lips, teeth, the tip of the tongue, you know, learning the, the Greek canon of theater, the contemporary American canon of theater, and really getting to the 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 the, the studying of, of drama because uh, I wanted to come to Los Angeles, but I didn't want to be another pretty boy with a headshot. I really wanted to feel like I understood what I was doing. So why is this all important? So going all the way back to that, to those beginnings and having been a troubled kid. And at one point I lived in a car with a couple of dudes, like, you know, oh I, you know <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it, it, it was rough. Right. So all this stuff. Now I get to Los Angeles in 2004. I'm convinced Hollywood is waiting for me. I'm telling you, like, they have no idea what they're about to get. Bianchi is showing up. Boom, here we go. Well, unbeknownst to me, I was kicked in the teeth by Hollywood and I ended up 
my first three apartments, I slept on a couch for the beginning and did it in Huntington Beach. And I drove from Huntington to Hollywood trying to get a job. Got my first job in Universal City Walk in Italy and slanging hot dogs and hamburgers. And my first three apartments, I had cockroaches in the kitchen. And my first real apartment, I slept on an air mattress in Silver Lake on the floor. And I would bunch up my clothes in a ball and create a pillow because I, I, I couldn't afford anything, you know. And I put on two pairs of pants and three shirts and I slept on an ice cold, you know, room in Silver Lake on an air mattress. And that, that was my beginning. That was my introduction to what I thought Hollywood was waiting for. So say all this because if I hadn't been expelled from schools, if I hadn't been, you know, in all kinds of, you know, fist fights as a kid, if I hadn't lived in a car with a couple of dudes and been a petty drug dealer at some point at points in my life, if I hadn't had these experiences, I absolutely believe that I would have left Hollywood running because I wouldn't have been prepared for how hard it actually was. Now, when it comes to producing film, why does the rave story make sense? Because when you're producing an electronic event, you're taking an empty space and you're bringing in sound, you're bringing in lights, you're bringing in power, you're bringing in crews, you're bringing in talent. You learn how to broker deals with agencies, how to handle talent when they're flying in. You have to get teams to pick up your team, pick up your talent from the airport, get them to the hotel. You do a talent contract. It was teaching me how to produce film. I just didn't know it yet. Because you produce EDM events, you're doing all the things that you do when you produce film, except you're doing it for a one-off event. Whereas in film, you're doing it for anywhere from, you know, a few days if it's a short, all the way up to 60 days if it's a feature, or even longer, depending on how big your show is. Wow. So, That's amazing. Right. You you got expelled from school, but you became magna cum laude. You, you started cutting your teeth without knowing that you were becoming a film producer by doing these raves. And then, so what, what was the turnaround that you started booking? Like, how'd you get an agent or how'd you, how'd you go from like living on the, um, the air mattress in Silver Lake to getting an agent and start booking some acting roles? What was the turnaround? That was a great question. So while I was at Arizona State, like I knew, so part of the reason why I wanted to go to Arizona State was my, my folks had a house out there. So I was trying to get in-state tuition rates, right? But I knew I wanted to bridge the gap in Los Angeles, 45-minute flight from Arizona to LA. And so while I was there, I was hustling. I got an agent in Scottsdale. And then I think I booked my first commercial for Subway that I still have footage of um, in 2002 when I, was in, when I was in Arizona. So I was able to use that relationship from that agency in Arizona to get me my first commercial agent in Los Angeles. But let's not get it twisted. Just because you got an agent, that means fuck all. Step in line, Clyde. Like, okay, cool. You're in your early 20s. You're non-union and you got an agent and a bad headshot. Welcome to the hustle, you know? <laughs> um, meanwhile, you got to pay rent, dog. So, you know, you're a waiter. I mean, I was a bartender and a waiter for 15 years in Hollywood. And I'm telling you, Marilyn, if my if my 36-year-old self could go back and tell my 22-year-old self that I would work in the service industry for 15 years to get to where I quote-unquote want to be, I'd have been like, hell no, I'm getting my MBA. I'm leaving this nonsense. I'm not doing it, <laughs> you know, but... But I've always been the kind of person to get to your question is I always attack the island and I burn the boat. That's it. 
attack the island and burn the boat. There's no way you're leaving this island. So you're either going to go back and drown or you're going to forge the island and you're going to and you're going to take your machete and you're going to chop through that rainforest and you're going to build a structure and you're going to survive. And so that's how I approached Hollywood. See, I never came to Hollywood saying I was going to try to be an actor. I came to Hollywood saying I am an actor. I'm classically trained. I know what I'm doing. I'm an actor. People would say, oh, what have you done? I haven't done shit in TV, but I'm an actor. <laughs> I love. You, know? you know what? I love that because I'm so tired of that. What have you done? Because if you're born into the business of something or you're a friend, you can just walk on and get a role. But like if you're trained, it's like give those people a chance, you know, give give the yeah, people I mean, that have talent, you know, and have studied. And now, like if you have followers on social media, they've never been trained. They never study. And then you're back in line again. So, well, you know, I, and that's a whole different tangent of a conversation. And, I, <laughs> and, 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 I will, and you know, and I will tell you, Ralph, the truth is, is that I thought I was ready, but the reality was I was not ready. Really? I, I didn't, I understood how to lead a stage, but I didn't know how to lead a lens. Okay. I did. And they're very specific, detailed, uh, uh, they're very specific detailed studies of how this needs to be done like playing for a lens is not playing for the you know the balcony of seats it's very very different two very different disciplines different styles of performance i also emotionally and spiritually wasn't ready for success you know i was drinking like an animal i was still chomping drugs on the weekend like i mean i was getting, <laughs> what's your I animal was, cougar i was <laughs> wolf i was getting I was getting crushed by Hollywood. Like it was hard. The only place that I felt alive was on the weekends in the nightclubs at, you know, in the after hours, you know, chomping ecstasy and, and feeling alive on the dance floor. I'm an old school B-boy being in the rave scene. Like that's what I felt alive because in Hollywood, I was a waiter and I, I was a waiter getting stiffed on tips. I could barely make it. I had a headshot. I had an agent that was barely getting me auditions. You know, I was doing extra work every single opportunity that I had. So it's a really hard existence when you come from being classically trained at a division one school, you know, magna cum laude to suddenly being a musculated city that doesn't give a shit about you and your dreams are getting crushed like granite. So, you need something to fulfill that space. And having been a spoken word poet, I started out as a battle rapper in upstate New York many years before that. I got into spoken word slam poetry while I was in Arizona. And so when people come to LA, I always advise them, you need to have something to get you through the in-betweens. Some actors have the stand-up comedy scene. Some actors have groundlings and they have Second City and they have improv. For me, it was the open mic and spoken word poetry. I always had a place where I could perform in front of an audience and release and feel purpose and feel alive and tell my story through a mic and I could and I could I could captivate an audience, right? That's the stuff that got me out of bed on Monday when I felt, you know, emotionally punished by the restaurant business while I felt emotionally punished by the hangover or the casting director workshops that I couldn't afford or all the things that were going on, having to, to, to do extra work in the hopes that I could be on the, on that side of the camera, you know, being fed as a non-union actor because I didn't have my SAG card yet, you know? So you need purpose. That's the stuff that kept me alive. If it wasn't for that open mic, I just don't think I would have made it. So I got my SAG card doing extra work in 2004 i did extra work for three years just to make ends meet and i think 
I booked my first commercial around there and I got my first speaking role um, on a show called General Hospital. <laughs> and I remember I was working at Robert De Niro's restaurant, a, a restaurant called Ago. I was a bartender there. Oh, nice. I was, and I was so excited. I was like, yo, I was telling everybody like, yo, I, I booked General Hospital. And everybody that worked there was an actor. And they're like, yo, congratulations. Good on, like people really like put wind in my sails. And I was so excited to get on that set. I'm telling you, I couldn't wait. I was like chomping at the bit to see my bit. And guess what? I had one, I had three lines. They shot me three lines on camera. I watched the episode. I had one line and it was off camera. They didn't even cover me on the fucking final cut. I didn't even ah, make the my mom had to see me in the background going, Carrie, Carrie, Carrie on General Hospital, but they did see me and hear me. So I'm with you in the General Hospital uh, voice, voice, voice pool here. <laughs> I mean, I mean Marilyn, I, Marilyn, I could have been butt-ass naked picking my nose and nobody would know it because <laughs> I wasn't even in the show. Um, but you know what? But it was like, these are the small nuggets that give you a strength to keep pushing forward. You know, I once heard someone say that Hollywood is emotionally punishing. And I absolutely believe that. It really, really is taxing. That's why you hear all these horror stories of people that came to LA and never made it because people tend to leave in the first two to four years, right? Because that's when you really realize how hard it is to become an actor. You know, everybody wants the red carpet, but nobody wants to be a waiter. Everybody wants a red carpet. Nobody wants to be a bouncer, a stripper, a a door-to-door salesman, a telemarketer, whatever the hell you got to do to get that first job where you get a line, where maybe you get your SAG card and then you can get a better agent because there's agents that that won't even rep you unless you're SAG, right? Those Those are the levels up, right? And so the first two years are really the most punishing and most people split after the first two years because they're just like, I don't want this that bad. But the distinction between me and all those people is that I wanted it bad. And there was nothing that was going to stop me. It wasn't going to be my mom telling me to come home. It wasn't going to be my dad telling me to maybe hang up the towel. It wasn't going to be any of that. It wasn't going to be anybody that said I'll never make it. I was not listening. I knew inside of my innermost self what I'm capable of. And I had to fight towards that goal relentlessly, unequivocally, no matter what. And you did it, which is just amazing. Like, uh, I mean, I'm on your like INDB, like with over 100 film and TV credits. It's like, it's just, and you know what? Your your voice is incredible. Your sound is like amazing. Obviously you're great on film, but like I'm listening. I'm like, wow, he's got such a great voice. I would love to hear your spoken word. Like I would be, that would be really beautiful to hear you do that. You know? Oh, that would, that would, it would, it would be an honor to do that. I mean, we're here, right? Um, I I always come from a place of very ground reality. You know, I have a lot of actors that I, 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 I donate a lot of my time to mentor actors and to give them advice. And I'm quick to tell you, like, you're doing it wrong. You know, you got to consider this. Like, I don't sugarcoat anything with anyone because there are a lot of people that gave me sugarcoated stories when I first got here. And it hurts when people lift you up and they give you expectations and those things don't show up, it hurts. I spent a lot of nights and days with my head in my hands, wondering how the hell I was going to survive. And um, that's why I tell people exactly the way it is. If you're, if people present their short film to me and they're like, hey, could you take a look at it? If it sucks, I'll tell you it sucks. But I'll tell you what's wrong with it. 
And I'll tell you what's better. You know, Robert Rodriguez, speaking of film, you know, there's a great book called Rebel Without a Crew. And if there's an independent filmmaker listening to this and you haven't read Rebel Without a Crew, I suggest you read it yesterday twice. Um, Robert Rodriguez, who's directed, you know, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Desperado, Spy Kids, blah, 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 blah. He says, look, everybody's got 10 bad films in their system before they start making good films. So hurry up and start failing so you can get to your career. Now you can make those 10 films in film school or you can make them out of your own pocket as a waiter and a pretender, which is exactly what I did. So I started producing film in professionally in 2005. I produced my first film and it was a piece called Soldier. And that was the birth of spoken word films for me. Um, it was a, a piece told entirely in poetry that was basically um, an artivistic piece about what can happen to someone when they lose a comrade in war. Uh, it was my, uh, it was my, uh, my outcry against the Bush administration's occupation of Iraq. And that film ended up getting directed by a guy in Chicago and it played 16 festivals, did really, really well, got lots of critical acclaim. We sold out the screening and I was like, holy shit, this is it. This gave me purpose. I was able to suddenly use all these skills of bringing people together in my gift of gab and convincing people that we could do something exciting. And we did. And that was the cinema, Spinward Cinema, which is now something I hold the trademark to and is the most, one of the most important reasons why um, I've blown up pain and NFT film. And that's a, a broader conversation that we could probably have later. Um, but I'd be happy to do some poetry for you. I mean, it's, it's who I am. You know, it's what I do. Oh, that's amazing. So you, so uh, like, um, can you share with, uh, well, we, you got your first film that you did. It sounds amazing about the soldier and spoken word. Were you also like, is that when you, do you want to tell, share a little bit how you got like your reoccurring on Queen of the South on Netflix or your Tyler Perry's Ruthless or your HBO's Westworld or MacGyver or what do you, <laughs> you got a lot, you got a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've done I've done a lot. I've done a lot, and and um, you know you're really you're you're leaning on some great shows, and I have had the opportunity to share the screen with some incredible actors. Um, you know, you have to break ceilings in Hollywood, and there's no right way or wrong way to do it. You know, that's what makes Hollywood so tricky, right? If you look at any role in business, there's a typical linear ascension. Right. You get a BA, you get an MBA, you get an entry level position of about 60,000 a year. Within five years, you could expect to be making 110, 120, and then the rest is up to you. That linearness doesn't exist in Hollywood. Even people you said earlier about nepotism, even people that are born into Hollywood don't always make it because not everybody born into Hollywood is talented. Right. Um, you have to have it. We always talk about the it factor, you know. Whatever it is that you do, whether you're an attorney, whether you're a mechanic, some people just got it, you know? Like, even if you're a mechanic, you know, let's say you're a mechanic and you're putting together a carburetor, but there's that one guy who just looks at an engine and he just does it. You don't know how, and you're just like, God damn, you're fucking great with a wrench, you know? <laughs> and 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 then there's the and then there's two attorneys and they both went to let's just say Harvard Law and they're both prosecutors, you know, they're both prosecuting a case, but one of them just has the knack to sway a jury of his or her peers into going his or her way because he just has that it factor, right? Um, and that's what you really need to have. If you believe that you have the knack or the it performance, then stay. 
don't quit before the miracle happens because you never know when the miracle is going to happen. And you never know who's going to help you along your way. But if there's a piece of you that even believes that you don't have what it takes, please save yourself the pain. Go back to Ohio where the rent's cheap. Get a house for 200 grand. Get a dog. Have two and a half kids. Live the American dream and take it easy. You know, because <laughs> I just, I tell it like it is. Um, you know, I've probably had more agents and managers than I can count fingers and toes. And some of them, I don't even remember their names anymore. And I've always said, and I'm getting to your question about these roles. I've always said that when I win my first major award, I don't want to thank the agents and the managers. Mm -mm. I want to thank the copy shop. I want to thank the pizza guy. I want to thank the bar manager, the restaurant manager. I want to thank the girlfriends that loved me when I was broke. I want to, <laughs> I want to thank the car that didn't break down. I want to thank the tots guide. I want to thank, you know, the computer that didn't quit out on me. That's what I want to thank, right? Because when you get to that major award level and you're rep by WME, CAA, you know, will, you know, um, Gersh, Paradigm, you name it. Um, these folks are grabbing onto you because of the work that you've already, that you're coming into the door with, right? That's the double-edged sword. And of course you thank them on the second award, but my first one is going to be solely to the service industry. Um, I remember booking Southland. Um, and I think that was the first like time that I really felt like I had done something explosive in television. It was directed by Regina King, the episode. I walked into the room and it was a producer's callback. And, uh, and I own the character. I was the guy. I carried the swag of this sort of like, you know, um, offbeat detective, as it were. And I remember seeing Regina in the room and looking at her. And she looked at me and she greeted me with so much kindness. Or her eyes spoke kindness. And we exchanged a couple pleasantries and went into the scene. I knew I landed. I knew I booked it. And I, and I remember meeting her on set when we shot it. And she said, David, you know, the reason I booked you on this job is because you were the guy. You walked in the room as the guy. You had the confidence and the swagger that this guy needed. And you walked into a room of me and, you know, three or I think it was three producers, a director and, you know, and, and a couple casting people, eight or nine people in the room. And none of it. And I, and I wasn't swayed. You know, I was on task. And that's important. That degree of focus is important. Because people aren't just looking at you, can you deliver the lines? They're looking for a degree of focus. You know, because all this stuff is telling. Like when I cast things, I'm not just looking for performance. I'm looking for how do you enter, how do you leave the room? And when it comes to self-tapes, like how are you preparing your self-tapes? How are you lighting your self-tapes? What do your self-tapes sound like? How seriously do you take your brand? Because if I see a really well-executed self-tape and a great performance. That tells me that that actor really cares about their brand, is probably going to be on time and never be late, is going to know their lines, and is going to be ready to be a part of the process. You know, so you're looking for everything. And I hope that that's decent advice for any actors out there. Um, that you want to have your, 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 your work and your muscle memory. You know, have it in your muscle memory. Um, as far as the shows are concerned, I will tell you this. I spent a lot of years getting in my own way, Marilyn. What do I mean by that? I escaped my pain and I escaped my anxiety and I escaped the quote unquote lack of success through drugs and alcohol for a long time in Hollywood. And about 
10 years ago or so, I realized that it was a problem. And now I'm grateful to say that I've, I'm now for five years since I've had a drink or any mood altering substance. Oh, congratulations. And thank you. And it's the most singular, the most important thing that I ever could have done for my creative persona. There, it's unequivocal that all the success that I am experiencing right now is a direct result of me getting out of my own way. Now, I don't know who I'm talking to in the audience and who might need to hear this message because artists are <laughs> a very bohemian bunch. But many times we as artists, whether it's drugs or alcohol, whether it's your ego, whether it's your personality, whether it's your judgment of people, whether it's your lack of, of, of business discipline, you can get in your own way and you lose opportunities and you don't even realize it. And I lost countless opportunities and I still can't count them because I don't know which ones I lost because I was too busy worrying about where I was going to go party and who I was going to sleep with and, you know, where the after hours was and, you know, don't you, don't you know who I think I am kind of stuff. You know? Wow. And now, and now I live from a place of abundance and, and spirituality and being of service to people and trying to do the best that I can to show up and be a part of the process. And it isn't about me. It's just about, you know, being a, a spoke in the wheel, you know, being part of a creative engine. And sure, when the cameras land on me, then it's my job to fulfill that moment. But once the cameras are off me, I keep it chill. I stay out of the way and I just stay focused. That's the place where I come from now. As a result of that abundance, now I'm doing the shows that you just described, right? Westworld. 14 episodes of Ruthless with Mr. Tyler Perry, um, now on a recurring guest star on Peacock and Resident Alien and Sci-Fi, um, just shot a top of show guest star on Criminal Minds and MacGyver and, you know, um, and the list goes on and on. Queen of the South. I shot Queen of the South. Let's, 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 let's go back to, uh, let's invite you back to uh, part two. So come back for part two with David because we've got so much more to talk about. Everyone come back to part two. We'll see you in part two with David. Be right back.